Going Linux, episode 339, Listener Feedback. Welcome to the Going Linux podcast. I'm your host, Larry Bushy. And I'm your co-host, Bill. Whether you're new to Linux, upgrading from Windows to Linux, or just thinking about moving to Linux, this podcast will provide you with valuable information and advice that will help you in Going Linux. We hope that you'll find this and all of our episodes helpful in learning about Linux and open source applications and using them to get things done. If you want, you can send us feedback at our email at goinglinux at gmail.com or our voicemail at 1-904-468-7889. In today's episode, listener feedback. Hello, Bill. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I am me and the flu or have been best friends for about a week and now I got my voice back and before I sounded like uh, I had been chain smoking cartons of cigarettes every day and drinking bourbon straight. So you couldn't even, I was like, I was really raspy. So <laughs> I said, I needed yeah, <laughs> it was pretty bad. Well, uh, I'm glad you're back. I'm glad you're feeling good. So anyway, yeah, I'm feeling good, staying out of trouble, and uh, how's your week been? Uh, Good week, a good week. Uh, You know, work, sleep, (laughs) wake, (laughs) work, sleep, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, okay. Well, (laughs) How about you? uh, That's pretty much it. I got a a new puppy who is now sleeping, thankfully. His name's Bear, and he is... uh, He's pretty good so far, so we'll see. Uh, I've only had him for a few hours so far, so let he's okay. asleep right now. So let, I think we should go ahead and get this podcast going before uh, he wakes up okay. and demands my attention. Yeah, no problem. If we have to interrupt for Bear, it'll be edited out so nobody will notice. <laughs> no one will know. Yeah, so here we go. Let's get started with our first email from Daniel. Uh, He wrote, hello to everyone. Thank you for your podcast. I like the idea of using Linux Mint with the Mate desktop because Mint would supposedly have all the drivers one would need to use for anything. Is Mint relatively more automatic? Might it be that Orca is not included on their boot image? How may I write to the Linux Mint team to ask why Orca is not included by default in their distribution? And that is the email from Daniel. So, uh, what do you think? Mm, I don't use Mint. <laughs> <laughs> You're the okay. Mint guy. Yeah, well, former Mint guy. Okay. Uh, so, to answer your question, Mint does have a lot of the things that you might need that are not uh, supplied with other distributions like Fedora or uh, Ubuntu or others um, automatically, um, as as you've put it. And uh, another one that does that is Ubuntu Mate, of course. And if you're going to use the Mate uh, desktop, you can use either one of those equally well, I'm sure. But since you ask about Mint, um, I do believe that the Mint team provides Orca out of the box. Uh, it is installed, if I remember correctly, unless they've removed it in the most recent versions. It's installed, but there's a key sequence that you need to press as you are booting up in order to make it active on boot up. Uh, 
Orca is the, for, for those who, of you who don't know, Orca is the screen reader uh, that is provided with Linux. And for the most part, you can get it enabled once you have things started, as long as it's installed by pressing the Alt, the Super key, and the S key simultaneously. The Super key, again, for those who don't know, is if you have a Windows computer, is the Windows key. If you have a Linux computer with a Linux pre-installed, it's probably the Ubuntu key or the Tux logo key or something like that. And if you're on a Mac, it's the command key is the super key. So it's Alt, Super, S. And that should start the screen reader reading the screen for you. Um, and when you are starting up for the very first time, uh, before you put in your password, you can even get uh, get things started right there on that login screen, if you wish. Um, if you are interested in finding out a little bit more about how this works in Ubuntu Mate, um, I can provide some information for you, but uh, it that Alt Super S key combination should work for Orca, regardless of which distribution of Linux you've got it installed on, and it should work on Linux Mint no problem. So if you have the the live version running, that's where you're running it from a uh, flash drive or from a DVD. Uh, try the Alt Super S key combination, and if you've already got Linux Mint installed, definitely try that and see if it's if it's turned on. You may have to go into the control panel uh, if it doesn't activate right away with that key combination and turn on Orca in the assistive technology preferences. And once that's done, you should uh, you should be able to get it going. Now that's assuming that Orca is installed. If not, then you can install it from either the uh, Linux Mint software manager, or you can uh, use apt-get space install space Orca, and that should download it and install it for you, and then you can configure it from there. Cool. And of course, that you would be typing into a terminal. Yeah. Okay. Our next email comes from Daniel, and he wrote, Hello, Larry and Bill. I am wanting to get a computer for Linux use. I have a limited budget. Is it better to get new or used? If I get new, most computers have Windows 10, and because I would have to get into the U. EFI settings, that would be difficult. Companies that sell Linux machines charge a lot for their products. Any ideas? Um, now, depending on his budget, Larry, I would say I would look to see if I couldn't find a uh, maybe a used uh, computer. And I have some ideas why that might be the best one. One, because it's a little bit older hardware that it would uh, the drivers for most of your uh, devices would work out of the box. Because instead of being bleeding edge, you might not, you know, they might not have updated the drivers for some of them because you know there's a little bit of lag time. Mm-hmm. But you can usually buy uh, used uh, computer equipment um, fairly cheap, and it's still be, uh, more and powerful. I mean, you can probably get i3s, i, i5s, and i7s, the you know older generations, and it will run just fine. So I would say. Um, you know, before you buy anything, whether it be new or used, 
find out what's inside of it and make and just do a search on the the Google and uh, make sure that there's no issues uh, as far as drivers. And one I would pay specifically at, uh, attention to are the video drivers and the Wi-Fi drivers. Everything else yeah, kind of exactly. works out of the box. Uh, I'll give you an example. I have a, a little full-blown little net, not a net, but well, it's a little netbook, a little small computer. And I have yet to figure out how to get Windows 10 off of it. Um, they have it locked down pretty tight. So I'm sure there's a way. I just you know, haven't had the time or energy more than just a cursory look. But what do you think? Yeah, exactly. So be careful what you buy if you're buying uh, used. Um, and if it's certainly getting something with Linux pre-installed is the best way to ensure compatibility. Uh, the second best way, I think, to ensure that if you're going to buy a used computer that it's going to work with Linux is um, is to do exactly what you said, Bill. But there's something else that you can do to ensure that the computer you're looking at is compatible. And that is Ubuntu provides a certified computer list, and it includes not only brand new computers, but computers that have been around a while. So we'll have a link in the show notes to the site where Ubuntu lists the computers mm -hmm. that are certified to work with Ubuntu. And, you know, if you use any Ubuntu derivative like Ubuntu Mate or Linux Mint or any of the other ones that that, that are derived from Ubuntu, you're, you're pretty safe going with any of the models that are listed in this list. The other way to go is if you are looking for something that is used, you can go on to uh, a, a computer's a manufacturer's site that does provide computers with Linux pre-installed and look like at Dell and see the Inspiron model computers that they offer that have Linux pre-installed and see once you've identified which models they are, then see if there are any available for sale uh, on uh, Amazon or any site that you might be looking at for purchasing a used computer. There are several good choices out there of manufacturers like Lenovo who don't provide computers with Linux out of the box, but do make them uh, compatible with Linux for the most part, and uh, almost any model that you choose from them will work. And those are our ideas. Daniel? Our next email comes from Alan, who wrote, Hi, guys. Recently, I picked up Linux for work, as it is far more productive. I installed Ubuntu 16.04. It's on a Lenovo ThinkPad 13 laptop. At work, I use a HDMI to plug into a second monitor. I set that monitor as the main display. If the monitor is plugged in before booting, it doesn't work. If I log out and leave my desk when I use the mouse or keyboard, to wake up, only one screen appears, sometimes the laptop, sometimes the other monitor. I don't know what is causing this issue or how to fix it. Thanks, Alan. Uh, could it just be the way the, the display set up uh, in BIOS, Larry? Yeah, it could also be, what does he say he's using? He's using Ubuntu. It could just be the way Ubuntu is configured. Um, and 16.04... What's that? Almost uh, two years old. Oh, okay. But that's an LTS, isn't it? Yeah, it is an LTS, which is good. 
but some of the display features back in 2016, if I remember correctly, that's the time that Ubuntu was messing around with, do we use Wayland? Do we use X? Do we use Unity? Do we use not use Unity? So there may be some configuration changes that will help with this issue of the monitors not displaying correctly in a more recent version. So I, I know it doesn't help to say if you could wait for another month or two, we'll have another long-term support release with 18.04, and that will probably fix your problems. I'm on Ubuntu Mate 17.10, which is one of those uh, interim releases. And even... I don't remember about 16.04, whether it had that display problem, but the way it works right now is if I unplug my laptop from, and I've got the same basic configuration that Alan has. If I unplug my laptop uh, without turning off the, the HDMI screen, uh, I just unplug it. Um, and when I plug it back in again, the screen comes up. Okay. If I s start from scratch uh, and boot it up, with the laptop first and then plug in the external monitor, it displays properly. If I uh, boot from scratch and have both the laptop monitor and the external monitor connected simultaneously, they both come on simultaneously. So it may have been a problem in 1604 that's been resolved since then. And I know that the display, the display driver is different with Ubuntu Mate than it is with Ubuntu proper because, you know, Mate is using X and I think Ubuntu these days is using Wayland, if I remember correctly. So there may be some some differences in the way this display is implemented. And I haven't tried Ubuntu proper for quite a while. So I can't speak from experience there. I thought they gave up on Wayland and went back to X. It's possible because they've been Changing making them. quite a few changes. Yeah, yeah exactly. And it, and if I remember correctly, some of the default applications uh, that Ubuntu provides don't work well with, with Wayland. Uh, and it's a display issue, if I remember correctly. So anyway, regardless of all of that, uh, if you can wait until the next long-term support release, 18.04, which should be out in April, uh, you should be good, I would think. And if um, if if that doesn't work... Uh, I think uh, th there's something else going on. I don't know what it would be. All right. Okay, our next email is from Kevin, who wrote, Greetings, Larry and Bill. Going Linux helped me start my Linux journey about seven years ago. Tempus fugit, as the Romans would say, Latin for time flies. I run only Linux for my personal use and installed Zubuntu on a nine-year-old Dell laptop at work after XP stopped being supported. I use the laptop for email, text messaging, task tracking, and minor document management. But I also use it as an interface for the more powerful Windows box needed to complete many tasks via the Synergy program, which allows laptops, keyboards, and mouse to control the input for the Windows computer. Makes me smile to get so much use out of an old system. Thanks in advance for any help you can give, and thanks again for the help in the past. When my children were both off to college, I canceled the cable TV service and went internet only, as we were not watching much cable or 
network TV. I have since upgraded my router from the internet provider standard to a Synology unit with built-in NAS. It was quite fast and I attached a one terabyte hard drive to it for storage and backups. I can get to the file system on the NAS from a file manager, but when I read instructions, forum threads, and web pages, I cannot manage the right setup, SMB or Samba, to allow me access from the command line from which I want to run several rsync scripts on a regular basis. Can you please direct me to some location or literature for a novice at networking so I can learn what is needed to access this device? Love the show. Thanks for staying with it. Kevin in Annapolis, Maryland. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. Okay, well, yeah, uh... I really haven't used a storage device like that from a command line other than for backups. Um, Let me take a look at my backup script here and see what that does. Okay, so if you can access it from a file manager, you should be able to go into that file manager. Did he say which distribution he's he's running? I don't remember. Oh, uh, I didn't. I remember seeing it. Let's see. Okay. Oh, Zubuntu. Zubuntu. There we go. It's Zubuntu. Okay. So these instructions aren't going to be exactly the same because I'm on Mate. But basically, if you open your file manager and you navigate to the NAS in the top of the file browser, which I think is Thunar in XFCE. Um, it should give you the path and it may show you little tiles with, you know, home and, uh, and then the next tile will be, uh, your username and so on. If you, uh, click, there should be some sort of utility there to click on that toggles between the text base location bar and the iconic location bar, which shows it basically graphically. If you go to the text-based location bar, what appears in there is the path you need to open the remote location, the location on your network attached storage via the command line. And if you CD space, you, you type in a terminal CD space, and then paste in there that path that's in your file manager, uh, that should open the directory on the remote storage. Let us know if that works for you, and especially if it doesn't work for you, and we'll get our Minion network on it and <laughs> see if we can find a way to uh, get you some help. How's that sound, Kevin? All right. Good luck, Kevin. He's not answering me, so <laughs> just wait. If he did, I would be surprised. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, George wrote, and he said, Internet filtering for kids. Probably the easiest and cheapest way to control what Internet content can be accessed from a home network is OpenDNS, now owned by Cisco. There's free plans and a 1995 annual plan. And he includes a link, which is in the show notes. That said, a guy in my circle of acquaintance had a smart child who was supposed to be doing homework on the computer. I can see where this is going. Yep. But spent hours producing nothing. He realized the kid was hiding his relatively innocent time wasters 
so the guy set up his network to block every not homework site the kid visited. Yet nothing improved. Kid mm. had learned to connect to the school's computer lab, then proxy out. So it's like all his <laughs> wasted time was at school. That's that's great. Smart kid. Very. I and, and he continues. He says I volunteer at a small public library, and he says supporting the computers and the libraries. Required by law to control inappropriate content above my zero dollar pay grades, and so <laughs> outsourced. And he includes a link. And he continues on, goes, disk erase. It's been a long time since we've removed and replaced a spinning hard drive. He says, I have a couple of computers I need to take off the shelf and gut as they don't fire up. Is it drives? Uh, were working, or the computer, or the computer's working. He said he wouldn't have to erase them. Uh, never been fully confident in even the mill spec erasing program. So while I've used them while repurposing a computer or donating a working system to charity, and then with two uh, complete runs at max, most of our retired and defective hard drives were handed over to the shop crew where the big drill press turned them into Swiss cheese. That's one way to do it. And the big hammer smashed the bytes into bits. Most people don't know large corporate type copiers and printers, often multi-purpose devices, will likely have data storage, in some, in some cases, large hard drives. Again, all that stuff can be regurgitated on the paper. SSDs are a different matter. Digital forensic sites say that files on an SSD with trim enabled can't be recovered after deletion if the SSD garbage collection routine has time to run. Most SSD man, uh, manufacturers offer SSD secure erase utilities. An uh, example is like Samsung Mag uh, Magician. When I used Magician, it was Windows only, but offered the option to create a bootable USB that worked on an Intel uh, NUC. Gparted will secure erase standard SSDs. Haven't confirmed it will do the same for the newer NVMe drives. He lists a, uh, a link to Gparted, and he said, Parted Magic, $11 to download or $49 a year, offers an NVMe secure race as well as the standard ATA commands. There's also uh, HD Pram through Terminal. I love this Wikipedia quote. Several of the 6-7 parameters are, danger are dangerous and could result in massive file system corruption if used indiscriminately. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I love that kind of... Yeah, be careful. And it says, care is advised. You sure don't want to aim at secure race at the wrong drive or, or try HD Pram in terminal and get it wrong. I read that formatting an SSD EXT4 will do the job for extra security, deleted data from the working SSD, pre presuming it is working, and leave... The computer powered on and idle, so trim and SSD garbage collection routines can do their things. Then 
time varies depending on the, the garbage collection method, he writes, that that's very specific to different SSDs, then reboot, then format. And he says, last comment. Apple may, may be the industry leader here, but soldered in SSDs pose real problems. If your computer dies, Apple may swap it for another or swap in a new logic board with another SSD. Your SSD and its data disappears behind Apple's curtain, and there's no certainty it can't and won't be recovered. If the data on your computer was truly confidential, say covered by HIPAA, which if for the people who don't know what HIPAA is, it's uh, uh, a series of lo uh, laws in the United States that's, uh, that tell how medical uh, documents with personal information could be handled and what they can and can't do. So it's very, very, very specific because they want to protect confidentiality. So that's what HIPAA is. So for those across the pond or in another country, mm -hmm. your only safe choice may be to destroy or write off the entire computer. Oof. That's expensive. Yeah. You know, I've I, I noticed that uh, Apple does solder the components onto the their their boards. And some of the some Windows uh, manufacturers do it too. But I think Apple was kind of like the pioneer. And if, if you have a bad logic board or hard drive, you're out of luck. Because, you know, you've got to replace the whole thing. And that includes the SSD. And you just... You can't just pull an SSD out and put a new one in or, you know, how many times have we replaced a drive because it went bad, Larry, and just it was a matter of just yeah. taking it out and, you know, done. But Yeah, popping a new one in. Yeah, yeah. not yeah. anymore. So, you got to be careful. Yeah. All good points. And yes. thanks, George, for helping out those people who in previous episodes had questions about those two things. I appreciate thanks. it. Yeah, Tony wrote our next email uh he said uh, and this is also about uh privacy on the internet he said pie hole can be used but even easier is open dns uh free home blocker with lots of instructions and free enjoy or not tony linux mint user 18.3 oh okay 18.3 yeah yeah. That's a version of Linux Mint, isn't it? Yes, okay. <laughs> it's been a while. All right, thanks, Tony. Thanks for those suggestions. We'll pass thanks, them on. Thanks, Tony. Well, we just did. <laughs> Nathan wrote to provide some insight into contacting <laughs> Ike. <laughs> I get one of these every uh, every podcast now since I said I, I wanted to contact him. <laughs> Yeah, you're going to actually have to do it one of these days. Yeah, uh, I know. Bill. When I'm not sick with the <laughs> flu. Anyway, <clears throat> he writes, Greetings. I heard on a recent uh, podcast of yours that you would like to interview the creator of uh, Solus, Ike Doherty. He is on Google Plus and Telegram. I contact him in Telegram and let him know you're interested in an interview. Gave him your contact information and talked you up a bit. Oh, boy. Oh, now you really have to do it, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they were talking you up because you're – okay, anyway. <laughs> I'm in trouble. I'm not sure if he has contacted you yet, but he knows and he is up for it. I, I enjoy what you do. Please keep it up, Nathan. Thanks, Nathan, for, uh, for doing that for me, and I haven't heard from Ike yet. 
But if I do, I will love to interview him. And we could do it like we did Jono, have a whole episode of questions and answers. I'd love to get his thought processes behind uh, his distribution. So thanks. Yep. Okay, our next email is from Jim, and he wrote about our last episode and included a rant. It's a bit long, so we'll break it up, okay? All right. Okay. Uh, Regarding number 338, personalizing your Linux desktop. Dear Larry and Bill, awesome. I didn't know there were so many layouts in Mate. This is fantastic. And the Redmond layout with the advanced menu is awesome. I've used it before on Linux Mint. So now I have many layouts and they are so easy to try out. Just a few clicks and you're done. I should poke around in the settings more. Embarrassingly, I did not find it myself, but this is why I listen to your show. Linux is such a pleasure to use. I left Windows back around 2007 when Vista was a new thing. That drove me away. It was awful, but I'm glad that it did because I discovered Ubuntu. I would never go back. You could not pay me to leave Linux. So now begins his rant. Also, I would like to add that as a professional IT guy, installing Linux is fantastically easier than installing Windows. I have done probably hundreds of installations. The Windows ones were really a pain. There are ways to make it easier, but they are anything but hands-off. Typically, you answer some questions for the installer and enter a long cryptic product key. Then the Windows installer works for a while and stops. Then it asks you for more information. After you answer the new question, then it works for a while more. Finally, you get it, quote, installed. (laughs) I see where this is going, Bill. Take it from here. All right. (laughs) So... Continuing on with Jim wrote, he says, Now you install many drivers just to get Windows online. You have to get the drivers using another computer or transfer them with a thumb drive or CD. Now you have to update it. It does not update during installation like Linux can. The updates may involve over 200 updates. I have counted them. Multiple reboots and repairing the updated program because it is broken. Since the release of your version of Windows, the updater has changed and the old one does not work. Finally, after a day or so, you have a Windows system installation, an installation that is vulnerable to millions of viruses and that you cannot tweak like your Linux system is slower and is harder to use. Compare that with a Linux installation. The installer asks you about five questions or so at the beginning, updates during the installation, installs itself. It can even partition and format the hard drive automatically and can install as a dual boot system. The installation takes way less time and asks its question at, at the beginning and then installs. Linux has no product key to lose, fabulous community support, updates during installation, and fast and easy installation. Furthermore, things like file managers are nothing short of fantastic. It is such a pleasure to use Kaja and Mate to manage files. Every time I have to use a Windows computer to manage things, I just cringe. Linux is light years ahead. End rant. 
thank you so much for your hard work. It might not seem like that much, but these tips make a huge difference. I hope Bill is feeling better. I am. Thank you, Jim. Sincerely, Jim. Wow. Uh, right. Great. You, I have to say, you're right. Uh, Jim, <laughs> Windows can drive you insane, and the new version drives me even more insane than usual. It's just a very short trip, I should add. It will sometimes just automatically say, you have to reboot now in the middle of working. <laughs> like, oh, no. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's happened to me a few times. Yep, and uh, sometimes you can put it off by mm -hmm. saying wait a bit or, you know, 24 hours or something like that. Uh, and same thing on Mac. I've noticed for my uh, um, work computer, we're using the latest version of Apple's Mac OS, and uh, it does the same thing right in the middle of your work. If you, don't, if you don't notice the notification telling you that it's going to update, it just shuts everything down and restarts, and then you have to wait. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, at Not least a good Linux thing. doesn't do that on you. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Jim wrote us again with another uh -oh. long message that we'll split up. Yep, Jim's uh, quite a prolific writer, apparently. <laughs> uh, dear, dear Larry and Bill, in your last listener feedback episode, someone asked about filtering out adult sites for the for his children. There is a really simple way without installing any software, and it works for any device in your network, regardless of the operating system. Free too. Use OpenDNS Family Filter or open an account at OpenDNS and customize the settings. If you do the latter, you can customize the filter by categories such as hate, violence, dating, social, etc. The way to set it up properly is very simple, really. For newbies, do not be afraid. Just slightly geeky. I will explain briefly. The steps in short form are 1. In your home router, set the DNS servers to OpenDNS family of filter servers, 208.67.22.123 and 208.67.220.123. Step 2. Reboot your computers and devices. Step 3. Congratulate yourself on a job well done. 4. Tell your spouse and friends how brilliant you are. <laughs> More details. When your computers or devices start, they talk to your router in your home and get an address for themselves and the address for a DNS server. A DNS server is just an address box for the internet. The computer does not know how to get, say, goinglinux.com. The computer needs a numerical address like 143.95.66.85 or things like that. So the computer on starting gets the address of the recommended DNS server. Then when it needs an address, it asks the DNS server, the address box, what the address is for, say, goinglinux.com. The DNS server replies to the computer with a numerical address. Then the computer pulls up the page. Well, you can use any DNS server you want. You do not have to use your internet prefer your provider's DNS service. So the elegance of this solution is to use the DNS servers at OpenDNS, which filter out unwanted sites. That is to say, rather than giving out the numerical address for, say, an adult site, they give the computer or device the address for a page that reads something like, this site is blocked. So, by setting your router this way, it will tell any device on your network to use the filtering DNS servers, regardless of the operating system. 
Then, when any of those computers or devices try to get to a bad site from within your home network, they are directed to a page that says blocked. I'm continuing Jim's email. You will have to read the manual on your router to find out how to set your desired DNS servers or search Google for how to do it. It's not hard. Routers normally just use the DNS server from your internet service provider. You need to change that to the open DNS server addresses. If you want to tweak the filters to your liking, you need to open an account at OpenDNS. It's free. And then the addresses to use are 208.67.222.222 and 208.67.220.220. But then you should install some software on one computer in your house to keep OpenDNS updated as to what the address of your home is, no, basically known as your public address. Most home users have addresses that occasionally change, for instance, after power outages. So OpenDNS needs to be advised when this changes. The OpenDNS software on one computer in the house automatically does this. But the simplest way is just to use the family filter DNS addresses above. You might like to have a look at OpenDNS site to see what is filtered. If I recall correctly, the family filter also includes filters for malware sites and phishing. There is more information at OpenDNS website. Alternatively, you can simply set the DNS server addresses on each computer rather than in the router, but that is not automatic like setting up the router. You have to do it for every computer and device in the house. And he says, here's a tip. In Linux, if you click on the networking shortcut on, on the panel, or maybe right-click on it, you have the option of connection information. It varies by distribution. But in that information, you will see what the DNS servers are. If you did it right, then you should see the DNS addresses that you set up. Remember that you may need to reboot if the addresses are not right. Jim continues further, a few notes on possible issues. After setting this up and testing it, you might find it doesn't work. Assuming that you tried to get the blocked site before you set up this filtering system, then parts of the computer remember the numerical address of the blocked site for a period of time. Not sure how long. I think normally about 24 hours. If this is the case, try a different bad site that you have not used for testing before the setup. Also, reboot your computers and devices. You can clear the computer's DNS cache, that is, their previous lookups. In Linux, I think all you need to do is disable networking from the networking shortcut on the panel and then re-enable it. In Windows, from a command line, type ipconfig space slash flush DNS. Yes, unfortunately, I work on many Windows computers. But you might have some of those dog systems in use in your location as well and need this. Also, Firefox remembers past DNS address lookups too. So clear the Firefox cache as well. I suppose Chrome, Safari, and other browsers do that as well, but I'm not familiar with them. So if they do not have their caches cleared, it will seem not to work on sites previously looked up. The blocked sites rely on people adding them to the lists at OpenDNS. 
There may be sites not listed on the lists or sites that should not be on the list. In other words, not 100% perfect, but I really think good. There is also something that is not likely to be an issue, but possible. A smart kid might know how to just set the desired DNS servers on his own computer to do some other non-open DNS server and not use the DNS server the router gave out. To prevent that, I install routers with non-factory firmware called DDWRT, which can force the use of specific DNS servers even if the user changes it on his or her computer. Now, I am getting geeky. Just thought I should mention it for interested parties. Also, you might have trouble setting the router provided by your internet provider. Probably not, but you might. In that case, you might want to buy another cheap router to put behind the router provided by your internet service provider. You can daisy-chain many routers with no decrease in performance, but increase in security. Another subject, more geek talk. Lastly, I do not have an affiliation with OpenDNS in case it sounds like an advertisement. I hope this helps. Jim, sub, sub, sub minion. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks, Jim. You've provided a lot of information, a lot of detail for those who are interested in the detail. And we really appreciate the summary at the beginning for those who really don't want to know the background. They just want to set it up and have it work. (laughs) Well, I think we can move them up to... Instead of being sub-sub-minion, we can move him up to just standard minion for all that work he did. Oh, absolutely. Okay. He's, he's a, a minion, a full-fledged minion network. Full-fledged uh, minion. I'll send now. you the card one of these days. All right. Yeah. As soon as we make up a card. Yeah, make up a card. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, there you go. Okay. So Eldon posted this in our Google+. Plus here and On feedback uh, for episode 337, F-Dupes is great for getting rid of duplicates. It does a binary compare and more. I've used it all the time to rid my server of duplicate messages and audio files. Just a word to the wise. Don't run a drive wiper on an SSD. It will likely not do what you want and could end up lowering the amount of the uh, read writes left on the drive drastically. The best way to handle an SSD is to use a utility made by the drive manufacturer to reset it. When it comes to limiting your network browsing to only approved sites, go OpenDNS. Seems like everybody agrees OpenDS is good. Yeah, I think so. If you want to know how you can even redirect Google and Bing to safe versions of themselves so porn cannot get through the image section, the best thing is this will work across all of your devices on your network. Cheers for the show. I love it. And now it's by Eldon. Okay. All right. A couple left here, Bill. A couple of short ones. The first one was from Craig. He wrote, Hi, Larry and Bill. I am just wondering if you or the listeners could recommend either a cheap mini PC or router that runs Linux that I could load some internet content filtering software on that would block off certain things such as porn from all devices on my network. I have small children, and as they get older, I want to ensure things are kept safe in my home. I have a DSL modem and want to filter both Ethernet-connected and wireless devices, but will need to connect this to the DSL modem. Also, looking for software recommendations. Thanks so much. Keep up the good work on the show. Well, based on the previous umpteen <laughs> recommendations yeah. of open DNS, that's where I would start. 
Uh, but if you really do want some hardware to run this software on, in our previous episodes, we've recommended uh, software to run, uh, but uh, we haven't recommended a mini PC for running that software. Certainly, you could do something as simple as maybe a Raspberry Pi. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be inexpensive, but it requires a little bit of tinkering and learning on your part. Uh, something that you could just install Linux on would be an Intel NUC or one of the uh, more generic versions of those small computers uh, that are headless computers. You just basically hook up a USB mouse and and display and keyboard and set them up and then stick them on your network, disconnect all those things and let them run. Uh, just be careful that you have a Wi-Fi card that's going to work. Otherwise, uh, most of these mini PCs, the headless PCs like that, will have a hardwired Ethernet connection. So... Um, you can use that and then you won't have the networking problems that you would have possibly might have with a built-in Wi-Fi card. You can also, you know, of course, pick up a, uh, a USB Wi-Fi dongle and use that as well on, on these devices. Another alternative is simply purchase an inexpensive laptop. Um, there are plenty of those with Windows on them that would allow you to wipe them clean and put Linux on them. That might actually be a less expensive way to go. Yep. And our last email is from Paul, and who wrote, I've done some research online on this, and I, but I'd like to get your suggestion for the best method to completely wipe data off a hard disk drive. Looks like there are several options available, but I'm curious if you have used a particular method or program that has worked successfully for you. Thanks again, Paul. And, you know, Larry, I think we had like three emails that addressed that. Yeah, I think so. And we may actually have read Paul's email before. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds very familiar. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I would go back to episode 337 and take a look in there. We have some, some listener feedback and some recommendations there. Yep. And uh, another one would be 335 and 334. Uh-huh. I think those, so 335, 334, 337. Uh, and of course, you're probably listening to this episode. So we've had some, some input on that in this yep. episode as well. Hopefully you have what you need now, Paul. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. All right, Larry. Okay. I think that wraps up our episode, Bill. I think it does too. Uh, in our next episode, we haven't uh, we haven't figured out what the topic is, but as always, we will have a topic. Uh, <laughs> don't know what it will be, uh, but it'll be interesting it's as always, and hopefully, it'll be useful. It 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 is a surprise. We should stop saying that we we're not prepared, even though it's true. <laughs> but uh, they know that if they don't get on the episode. Yeah, they, they do know that. Yeah, the, the whole audience knows that. Uh, but yeah, we, we, we come up with something interesting every time, or at least we seem to have people interested in what we're talking about. So that's good. Stay tuned. It'll be a surprise. <laughs> okay. Until then, you can go to our website at goinglinks.com for articles and show notes, as well as links to download and subscribe. We are the website for computer users who just want to use Linux to get things done. If you like, you can participate directly with our friendly and helpful community members by joining the discussion in our Going Linux Podcast Google Plus community. 
Until next time, thanks for listening. 73. Music provided by Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com.